If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Hebrews chapter 6. If you don't have one, if you grab one from the, from the pews, if you've got the black Bibles, that'll be the same version that I'm preaching out of this morning. Um, and we've been in Hebrews for a while. It's in the New Testament. It's towards the end of the Bible. So if you hit James or Peter or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you've gone too far. So go back a little bit. But we've been in this for a while, uh, for a long time. And it's probably worth reminding us what this book is all about. So if, uh, if the book of Hebrews could have only one 80s power ballad as its theme song, it would be Don't Stop Believing." That's what this book is about. Don't stop believing. Now, when I titled this series, I called it, Is Jesus Worth It? Because that's a question that gets asked uh, in this book implicitly. But you could easily just call this Don't Stop Believing." That's, that's the author's main concern. Because his congregation is in huge danger. These people ha- have begun the Christian life, and they started well. They, they put initial trust in Jesus. There seemed to be some fruit. But now they're considering walking away. They're thinking about giving up, which is a huge danger. And so just over and over again, you get this refrain, don't stop believing. Uh, It seems sort of crazy. Like, why would anyone stop believing in Jesus? I mean, obviously, he's the source of life. Why would would you stop? Well, there's three big things um, that come up when you look at this book, three big options that are live options, real reasons why people would walk away from Jesus. One of them is sluggishness. Okay, just this, this general, lazy, um, just sort of drifting away. Not intentionally walking away from Jesus, but just through lack of any intentionality, you find yourself doing just that. So I might start out with, you know, you just stop reading the Bible for a while, or, you know, you stop praying, you, you stop going to church, and, and, and you're kind of walking along, you're living your life, and if anybody were to ask you, are you a Christian, if it was convenient, you would say, well, yeah, Sure. But, but somewhere along the line, after a while, you wake up one morning and you think, do I even believe this stuff? Really, do I even believe this stuff? It's a danger. That's a way that someone can walk away, just through sluggishness, drifting. Another way that it can happen, we see in this book, is through sin. That's more of an active approach. So you, you, you're living your life and you find something that the Bible clearly says is wrong, but you like it. You like it, and, and, and it could be a lot of different things. It could be sexual, sexual immorality. It could be pervasive greed or maybe holding on to a grudge. Maybe it's lying. Something, some, something that you lie. You know the Bible says it's wrong, but, but at the same time, you really like it. And so you get these warring uh, halves of yourself. Part of you is like, well, I really, really love this sin, but I want to follow Jesus, but he says it's wrong. And, and so as you nurse your sin, as you pursue your sin, the love for the sin gets stronger and stronger and stronger, and your love for Jesus gets weaker and weaker and weaker until one day you come to the decision point and you say, I would rather have my sin than Jesus. That's, that's a way that people walk away. Or maybe it's suffering. This is another big theme in this book, suffering. It could be suffering that you experience specifically for being a Christian. So in our context, maybe it's that people think that you're a horrible person, that you're a hateful person because you're a Christian. You dare to believe in things like hell. Uh, you dare to believe that there's some sort of standard for sexuality. People think, man, you're such a bigot. You're such a hateful person. And you don't like that. Nobody likes to be called that. 
Or maybe people think you're an idiot. You're tired of people thinking you're an idiot. You believe in the miraculous? You believe in the supernatural? You believe that God created the world? You know? Maybe you get passed over for promotion at work because of the values that you have, and, and you're just getting tired of it. You'd rather fit in with the crowd. And so that pressure, that pressure to, to fit in, to not suffer, can lead you to walk away. Or, or maybe it's not even suffering for being a Christian, but just suffering in general. Like you thought when you became a Christian, at some level, that you would not experience major tragedies anymore. You thought following Jesus meant that you're going to have steady employment and you're going to have freedom from sickness. You're never going to be depressed. You're never going to be betrayed. You're never going to know any of that pain that other people who don't know Jesus have. You thought things would always work out. And then when they don't, we think, if Jesus doesn't keep my life from experiencing suffering, then why would I even follow Jesus? So so these things, these sluggishness or sin or suffering, these are all live options, real dangers that face the congregation that this book was written to, and it it faces us. This is just life, right? We face these dangers, and so we need this encouragement. We need this book that reminds us in the face of all these things, don't stop believing. Now, the way that the, the, um, the author of Hebrews tries to achieve this goal is sometimes he gives stern warnings. And we looked at that last week. We had a scorcher last week. Hebrews chapter 6, very strong warning. Saying, don't walk away. Don't walk away. Because if you walk away, there is, as we saw last week in in chapter 6, there is a point. I don't know where it is, but there is a point. There is a cliff beyond which if you cross over that line, you're never going to want to come back. Not that God can't forgive you, but you won't want it. He says, that's dangerous. So, so what do you do when you find out there's a cliff? You don't get as close to the edge as possible. You run as far away from it as you can. And so with a stern warning, he says, run as close to Jesus as fast as you can. But there's also encouragement. Okay, one of the ways in which he approaches this is by giving us warnings and saying, don't stop believing because the alternative is super scary. But don't stop believing, he also says, because the, the benefits, the, the encouragement of continuing in your faith is so strong, it's so rich, it's so wonderful, why would anyone want to stop? And that's what we get to look at today. It says Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, where he says to us, don't stop believing because God is faithful to keep his promise. I'm going to read these verses. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read out loud. Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than, them, than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Right? I know you're already like, who's Melchizedek? We'll get there, all right? That's, that's the next time. But we're going to focus on the rest of the passage this morning. And the main point of this passage is that God's made a great promise, that he's faithful to that promise, and that should motivate us to keep believing. Okay, but we're going to need to unpack that a little bit more to see how it helps. So what I want to do is I want to lay out first, it's talking about God's promise. So what has God promised? And then, what does it mean when God says, I promise? Okay, so that's what we What has he promised? And then what does that mean when he says, I promise? So first, what has God promised? Here's, here's what it is. God has promised eternal life through Jesus, received by a faith that perseveres. God has promised eternal life through Jesus, received by a faith that perseveres. So you're like, where do you see that in your passage? Well, it's not in the passage, right? Because we're in the context of a whole Bible. What you see here in this passage is he just keeps saying the word promise, promise, promise. You're like, well, what is the promise? And, And for us, because of the way that we're going through this book, it's literally been months since we were in chapter four of Hebrews, okay? So we've all forgotten. What, did, what was chapter four of Hebrews? What did it say? But if you're just reading this book straight through the way it's meant to be read, it would have been minutes, maybe. So the promise, he's already defined for us what the promise is in chapter four. You just look right on back here in chapter four, verse one. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The promise is the promise, he says, of entering God's rest. And then all of chapter 4 is about this rest. And what we saw when we looked at that is that he's talking about eternal life. Saying the rest that we're looking forward to is the rest of eternal life. This is what God promises. Eternal life with God in heaven and ultimately in the resurrection, in new bodies, on a new heaven and a new earth. This is a really great promise. I was, I was reminded of the wonderfulness of this promise a few days ago, it was Friday, I was walking our dog, and uh, we're walking around Washington, and I was listening to some Switchfoot, singing about one of their songs about the end of the world. And if you know Switchfoot, you know they've got a lot of songs about the end of the world, just the, the wonder of Jesus coming back and how great this will be. So I'm, I'm walking the dog in Washington, listening to this song, is about how, you know, the, the world's just not right. The world's not right now, and when Jesus comes back, it will be right. And I turn the corner, walking the dog, and I just see all the devastation still. You know, the snow's melted, and, but, and so you just see all this junk, the residue of the tornado that swept through town, and people trying to rebuild, and, and Switchfoot's just singing, nothing is sound, nothing is sound, nothing is sound. And it hit me again, oh, Jesus, I just want eternal life. You know, I just want a world where we don't have any more of this garbage and these tornadoes, where things are sound. We don't have to worry about moth and rust and things breaking into steel or tornadoes, knocking buildings down or people dying or cancer or any of this garbage. Like, I want eternal life. We want the world the way it's supposed to be. And that's what God is promising us, a time of rest. A rest from all our sorrows. That's the promise that's coming here. God's promising us eternal life. And he says, the way that you get it, is through Jesus. He's already talked about that in chapter 2. Remember chapter 2, starting in verse 14, if you flip back a couple more columns or a page. So he talks about what Jesus has done for us. In, in, in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, talking about Jesus, himself, likewise partook of the same things. So he's saying Jesus became a human. Why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay, this is, this is what Jesus did. We sang about this. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Jesus became a man. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died because of our sins. And because he did that, and now offers himself for us as a substitute, we can have the hope of eternal life. He who died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven is now the forerunner for us. He's, he's blazing the trail. He's already died. He's already risen from the dead. He's already in heaven. He's saying, this is what's going to happen for you if you follow me. So God offers eternal life through Jesus. But this eternal life through Jesus must be accepted. It's a gift. So how do we get that gift, how do we make it ours? It's by faith. Again, Hebrews has been very clear on this. We could go other places in the Bible, you know, to, to show you these things. But I'm just showing you, we've already covered this in this book. This is by faith. Again, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 2. Sorry, verse 3. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest. Who is it who gets in? Who, who is it who gets the eternal life through Jesus? Is it the people who do the right works? The people who perform the right rituals? The people who uh, help the most old ladies across the street? Like, who is it who gets in? We who have believed. Those who have faith. It's a free gift that must be accepted. Now, the, the, the somewhat unique contribution of Hebrews in terms of the whole Bible is it really helps us understand, though, what that faith is. What does it mean to accept that gift? Because what we see is that, that faith, it's, there's two different ways to accept a gift. Okay? You can accept a gift kind of like, like when you get a Christmas present. You know, kids are like, oh, I, just, I want a remote control car. I just, I gotta have it. This is like, this will satisfy everything. I, if I just had this remote control car, this would be the best Christmas. I never need another present again. Just give me this car. And, and so they get the car. They get, and they, they play with it for like three days straight. They accept the gift. Absolutely, thank you. And then they're done with it, right? They thought, oh, this is the car that's gonna satisfy all my needs. This is everything I wanted. I played with it. All right, I'm moving on. Okay? It, it's, you accepted the gift, but it doesn't have any lasting significance in your life. That's one way to accept a gift. Another way to accept a gift is like you accept a wedding ring. Okay, like you're standing up here with your prospective spouse and they give you the ring. Now, when you accept that ring, you don't just accept the ring and say, that's a really nice ring, thanks. And then go on and live your life completely the way you were before with no continuing significance of the person who gave you the ring, right? No, it's, it's, it's a continuing gift. It's, a, it's an, in, an individual act. It happens one time but it has ongoing significance. It's a gift that you continue, in a way, to receive all the time. It's a gift that have a, has a life-changing commitment attached to it. And so what we see in this book, what we've been reminded over and over again, is that the faith we're talking about, the faith that accepts the gift of salvation through Jesus, is not like the gift that accepts a Christmas present and says, that's really nice, and you like it for a day, or a week, or a month, or a year, but then the rest of your life, it has no significance whatsoever. That is not saving faith. 
Saving faith is faith that accepts the gift of Jesus like a wedding ring that says, I believe and I continue to believe and continue to walk in commitment to this relationship with you for the rest of my life. So we put all that together and we say, what has God promised? We've got to understand this. What has God promised? It's us eternal life through Jesus that's received by a faith that perseveres. If you put your faith in Jesus in a real, saving way, committed to him, then you get eternal life. Right? That's huge. That's huge. That's, this is what's promised. I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but if we raise our hands, I hope everybody's like, do you want this? Yes. I want this. Right? Yes. You can ra- it's fine. Steve, raise your hand. Good. I want this. I want this. This is a great promise. This is amazing. We, we want eternal life with God through Jesus Christ. And the, the cool thing is, okay, here's where we're in our passage again. The cool thing is, is God has promised that you're going to get it. God's promised that you're going to get it. Now, the problem with that is that it just doesn't mean that much to us anymore when someone says, I promise. You know, like, well, God's promised. Okay. Is that what, what's, a, what's a promise anyway? I mean, is he just, what, what does he mean when he says, I promise? What does God mean? Because I know what other people mean when they say, I promise. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, guilty, okay, sometimes in parent-child relationships, the word promise means nothing more than just a slightly stronger yes. Okay, so, you're, you're, and your kids know this, right? So, so, um, Yes is not very strong, right? Sometimes they ask you a question, can I have, I don't know, can I have chocolate after, can I have some candy bar after dinner? Yes, you can have candy bar after dinner. You promise? Okay, well, I just said yes, but that apparently isn't, very, isn't strong enough, so I need a stronger yes. Okay, yes, I promise. Do you promise promise? Because a promise isn't a promise, it's just a stronger yes. I want to know, is this nailed down? Like, am I really... I want the chocolate after dinner. Am I really going to get it? And he said, yes, and I know you promised, but did you promise, promise? Okay, that's how it works in, in parent-child relationships. Kind of our everyday usage, promise is just a stronger yes. But sometimes it's even worse than that. Uh, campaign promise, okay, actually means the opposite of a promise, right? A campaign promise is a way of saying a convenient lie, Right? I'm, and everybody knows it's always oh, just a campaign promise. What do you mean? That means you're just saying that to get elected. It doesn't actually mean anything. Okay? So, so sometimes a promise is actually a lie, just to manipulate you. But then you also look at probably one of the biggest damages we've had to our concept of the idea of a promise is what we've done with marriage. You know, it's supposed to be this public, profound promise. And it is a promise. I mean, everybody still promises. When you get married, everybody still says some variation of the promise, I will be with you until one of us dies. You know, until death do us part. Everybody still makes that promise. But so many people break that promise. It makes you wonder, what does it mean when you say, I promise? It's as if we all have this unspoken rider attached to it. Where we say, I promise that I will be with you for the rest of our lives unless for some reason I don't want to do it anymore. Right? So we say the promise, but there's this unspoken statement that 
but there's, there's an escape clause if I really want it. So that begs the question, what, what, what kind of promise is God making? When God says, I promise, is he making a campaign promise? Is he saying, all right, I've got to get these people to follow me. I'll tell you what, I'm going to promise them eternal life. I probably won't be able to do it, but you know, I, I just want to get them to follow me, so I'll just manipulate them by promising them great things. They don't know any better, so they'll just follow me, and then in the end, you know, I got what I wanted. Is it a campaign promise? Is it an everyday promise? Is it like us, where God's saying, you know, I fully intend to give you eternal life, but if circumstances happen and things don't work out, well, I tried. Or is God's promise like our marriage promise, where he says, yes, I am guaranteeing I will give you eternal life unless you do something and I find out I really don't like you anymore. What does God mean when he says, I promise? Here's the news. What God means when he says, I promise, is he means that he will be absolutely 100% faithful to do what he has said he will do. That's what he means when he says, I promise. And what we have in our passage are two images that are given to us to reinforce this, to just drive it home. Because apparently in the first century, it was as big of a deal as it is today. When people make promises, they don't keep them. So what does it mean when God says, I promise? He says he keeps his promises. And here's how we know. First, we get this legal image. It's a legal image, like an, an image of an oath or a contract. This is in verse 13 through 15. It shows us how God makes promises. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So so these verses show us how God makes promises. Is it a promise? Or is it a promise promise? Okay, this is the definition of a promise promise. Promise, because God didn't just promise, he took that promise and he wrapped it in an oath. Okay, he, he made a double promise. When he made a promise to Abraham, he said, I promise I'm going to do this to you, I'm going to bless you. And then he said, I swear to God. He swore by himself. He made a promise and then an oath. Now, why would he do that? Well, the passage tells us. Look in verse 16. He says, for people swear by something greater than themselves And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Okay, saying this is what people do. We still do this today. We swear an oath because an oath is, in some respects, better than a promise. So if you're in a courtroom and you're testifying, you don't get to just say, I'm telling the truth. You don't even get to just say, I promise to tell the truth. Okay, you have to swear an oath that you are going to tell the truth the truth. Okay, they make you swear before God and the state that you are telling the truth. Uh, or, or kids do this, right? Kids like, my dad's an astronaut. And the kid's like, no. You're like, oh, I promise. I still don't believe you. I swear to God. Right? Well, and what do you do after that? Right? Well, that's it, right? You, 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 you make the promise, well, that's not good enough. So you, you swear an oath to someone higher than yourself, because when you do that, you put an end to, to the conflict. It, why does that happen? Well, because when you make an oath, you're actually putting some skin in the game. It, it's a promise with some consequences. So if you, if you just lie in your everyday life, 
the government doesn't get to come in and try you for perjury. They don't have an authority over you. It's wrong to lie in every life, but the government doesn't get to punish you for that. But if you lie under oath, what you're doing is you're saying, I promise to tell the truth, and if I am lying, then you can put me in jail for this. So there's higher stakes, which make people believe you more. And so it ends the dispute. And what God's doing here is God saying, I want you to believe me. I want to believe you, you would believe me so much that I'm going to swear an oath. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to lie, we may hold on to the hope set before us. This is the definition of a promise, promise. God makes a promise, okay? And when God makes a promise, that's already guaranteed. When God says something, it's guaranteed because it's impossible for God to lie. But he wanted to make it clear to us the unchangeable nature of his purpose, that he's he's just saying, I'm not lying, and let me prove to you that I'm not lying. I'm going to promise, and then I'm going to wrap that promise in an oath so that you know that this is absolutely true. Now, God can't swear by anyone higher than himself, we, all, we have to swear by someone higher so that someone can actually punish us if we break the, 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 the promise. God doesn't have any higher, so he swears by himself. And so it's just completely unimaginable that God would break this promise. I don't know what would happen. Would the universe explode? Would, would we cease to exist? I don't know. It's just in, unfathomable what might happen if God were to break this promise. And he's saying that's how sure it is that I can't lie, and now I've promised by myself, and it's going to happen. And why did he promise like that? He promised, it says in verse 18, so that we would persevere. He's done this in the second half of verse 18, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It should motivate us to keep believing, to keep on believing because God is faithful, because it's a sure thing, because his promise of eternal life is a sure thing. It should motivate us to invest everything we have in following after him. By contrast, I just, just think about how we view stocks and 401ks and mutual funds. And there's these things that, that we invest in. People invest in these. right? Because there's a potential for great reward. If you sacrificially, over the long haul, invest financially in these things, in stocks and mutual funds, put it in your 401k, uh, then the potential is that in the end, you will reap a great reward. And so many, many, many people do this. Okay, but, but think about this. That's not a promise. Okay, we invest in that even though it's not a promise. See, the banks, you understand, have that FDIC guarantee. So you put the money in, you're going to get the money out that you put in there. But, but every time I've ever seen any literature on stocks or mutual funds, they have some variation of this statement. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. I believe they are legally required to tell you that. Because they'll, they'll, they'll show you, like, look, if you had invested uh, $1,000 50 years ago, look how much you would have now based on past performance. And you think, wow, that's great, so why should do that? But what they have to tell you is past performance is no guarantee of future results. This is not insured. This is not promised. You could do everything right. You could invest so much of your whole life savings in putting into these 401ks or these mutual funds. And at the end of the day, because of circumstances out of your control... You could lose everything. Okay. Now, I'm not here to scare you out of like, putting money in mutual funds. Okay, that's not my point. I'm not really talking about that at all. 
But what I'm saying is, if people are willing to invest so much in something that is not guaranteed, how much more should we be willing to invest everything in the only sure thing on the planet? The promises of God are guaranteed. They are secure. He has promised. He cannot lie. And he has sworn an oath that eternal life is yours through Jesus, received by faith. If that is rock solid, then let's invest everything we've got in pursuing that, in living for that. Let us not risk for a moment walking away from that. That's the legal image. But there's a second image in the passage, and it's the nautical image. Okay, the nautical image. It's this picture of an anchor. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So our hope, our hope is described as an anchor. And so here we've got to do a little reclamation work too. Just like we had to reclaim the meaning of promise, we've got to reclaim the meaning of the word hope. Because when we talk about hope in our context, in our everyday usage, we're talking about something, we wouldn't use anchor as the image. If somebody said, "Uh, write down, draw a picture of what you think of when I tell you the word hope. You wouldn't write down an anchor You'd write down something like, you draw a picture of a cloud or a rainbow, something, you know, intangible, something ethereal. You can't wrap your hands around it. Hope, it's something I'm, I'm hoping for. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I win the lottery. I hope Iowa State goes all the way. Like, it's probably not going to happen, but you can hope for it. He says, no, 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 the picture. The picture is not of some rainbow. The picture is of an anchor. Hope, in the biblical sense, is something that's secure, that's, that's, it's rooted down, it's an anchor, it's weighty, it's going to happen, it's steadfast. It's something substantial. And the reason why our hope is substantial is because it's built on the foundation of the unshakable promises of God. It's an anchor. Now, I'm not a sailor, but I know how anchors work. Right? You put them down, and they keep your boat in one spot. The closest thing I could come up in my everyday life is, and this is, if you're counting, this is my second dog illustration in the sermon, but you know, we've got a dog now, and he can't get mad when I use him in the sermon, so I'm going to keep talking about him. Uh, but we've got a dog, and so like, we'll, we, we put him out in the yard, but we cannot let him just be by himself, because he will go and bark at other dogs and pee on everything, and so we've got to keep him in one spot. So how do we keep him in one spot? We anchor a leash in one spot in the yard, and we put the leash on him, and then he can, he can go places, right? But he cannot leave the yard. He is anchored. He is stationary in one spot. He is kept there. It's his anchor. And, and what the Bible is saying is that we've got an anchor. God has put down an anchor for our souls. And where has God placed the anchor? This is the great part. Where has he put the anchor? Do you see that in verse 19? The hope, this anchor, enters into the inner places, Behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone. He's talking about heaven, the very presence of God, right? So the, the pictures of the, the temple, there's the temple that was uh, established, there, was, there were two sections. There's the holy uh, place where the priests would do their normal priestly work. And then there's the holy of holies where they weren't allowed to go into uh, where God dwells. 
Okay, that was where God's presence was in a special way. And so the picture here is of, of heaven where God is dwelling in his presence where Jesus has gone. And, and what the passage says is our hope, this anchor that God has put down for our souls is actually in heaven in the presence of God. So we're anchored there. We can't go anywhere else. We're stuck. When the storms of life hit us and we're buffeted from side to side, when our, our, our prone-to-wonder hearts begin taking us down bad paths, we get caught by this anchor, by this leash. God has taken it. He's put it in heaven. He's tied us to it. And he said, you are going to make it here. So I'm not going to let you walk away. Because you've got an anchor. These promises of God anchored in Jesus in heaven right now. See what God's saying? He's saying his promises are true. He's sworn an oath. He's, he's, he's made a promise that he can't lie. It's going to happen. And on top of that, because of what Jesus has done, going already into heaven on our behalf, we have an anchor in heaven that's keeping us there. That's how secure the promise of God is that you will have eternal life through Jesus. That in a sense, you're already there. Other religions don't talk like this. Right? Other religions don't talk about anchors. If they were to give a picture for their worldview, it'd be the picture of a ladder. Right? It's not about an anchor in heaven, it's about a ladder to heaven. And that if you do good things, then you get to go up a couple rungs. If you do some bad things, you might slide down a few rungs. And so your goal in life, your whole purpose is if you want to get to heaven, you've got to climb the ladder. You've got to do more good things than bad things. You've got to really make it there. But God's promise isn't that through Jesus I have made a ladder by which you can climb through your own self-effort to get to heaven. He's saying, no, by Jesus, I have given you an anchor to heaven. You're already there. Which means, no matter what storms blow, no matter how badly we screw up, if we put our faith in Jesus, eternal life is guaranteed. So, don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. This is what we're believing in, this incredible promise of God. Eternal life is a free gift through Jesus. He's not backing out on the deal. It's going to happen. Now, sometimes along the way, as we walk by faith, the road's going to be hard. There's going to be times, maybe now, when you feel like giving up. There's going to be times when you doubt, does God really love me? You might wonder, is he going to come through? I know he's said all this stuff, but is he really going to come through? So many other people have disappointed me in my life. People have made promises and they just have not followed through with it. Is he going to be like that? Okay, when those doubts assail, when those storms come, remember this, that God is absolutely faithful. He has promised to give eternal life to those who have faith in Jesus. And he does not break his promises. So, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. For he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Um, Father, you are faithful. That, that's, that's the message of this passage. It's the, 
the weight that you're putting on my heart right now, would you give us all the ability to believe that? We have been burned. We have burned other people in promises and, and making promises and coming through. And, and may we not build our hope on our experience with one another. But would you give us a firm, secure hope based on our belief in your promises and your faithfulness to do all that you have said you will do. Thank you. Um, thank you that our task in all this is simply to believe, simply to receive. Um, we, we repent of our sin. We, we have sinned. We do sin. We do walk away from you, but we, we thank you for the anchor that keeps pulling us back keeps pulling us back. Lord, reel us in today. Reel us in this week. May we have a time of deep fellowship and deep communion with you even as we walk through the storms of life. I pray this in Jesus' name.